I, I want to welcome you to today's edition of The Bradley Hall Show. And I am your host, The Bradley Hall. As you've guessed it by now, I am the Bradley Hall. I wanted you to know that I am a certified trauma recovery coach and a certified mindfulness instructor and a certified holistic life coach. Now, what this means is that I am a trauma-informed holistic life coach with a focus on awareness, which is the first step to any type of personal growth. Let my 30 years of coaching and my experience overcoming trauma work for you. To work with me, go to my website, thebradleyhall.com. Look for the coaching tab in the upper right-hand corner. You can choose holistic life coaching or trauma recovery coaching. Anyone who ever accomplished anything had a great coach or a great mentor. You should too. You're worth it. Contact me now. Welcome back to today's edition of the Bradley Hall Show. My guest today is uh, an old, another old friend of mine. His name is Christopher Aber. Christopher is the founder and director of the Southwest Recovery Alliance. It is a comprehensive harm reduction and disease prevention program. He has over 15 years of professional experience collaborating with people living with HIV, HCV, people who use drugs, survivors of domestic violence, at-risk youth, and people experiencing poverty and homelessness. He is a national harm reduction consultant and trainer, offering technical assistance and guidance to assist communities in building functional capacity to improve the health outcomes of people who use drugs. He presents information on the public health benefits of harm reduction and is passionate about centering the needs of at-risk populations while utilizing research-based, compassionate approaches to drug use and disease prevention. And Christopher has joined us today, and we're going to discuss what brought him, his past history, what brought him uh, to be so passionate about this, and go into detail about the work he does, and how that parlays into someone you may know. So please help me, uh, please join me to, to welcome Christopher. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Brad. Glad to be here. Yeah, good. I, I'm glad that you're here. Um, you know, I've, I've really been looking forward to this conversation since we uh, started talking about it. And I, I you know, I want to give a shout out to uh, to Dave Ireland, who's the one that um, suggested that we we get together. Um, so I, I've read your bio to uh, to the listeners, and um, it's pretty pretty unique bio. I'm very impressed. And I want to kind of simplify for the listeners that we're here to talk about. Uh, we're here to talk about addiction, right? Um, I, I know that's overly simplified. Um, no, just... I mean it's it's important. I think there there is a distinction between addiction and substance use disorder, and it's maybe a good place to start talking about yeah. uh, why I would prefer calling it substance use disorder uh, to addiction. Okay. <clears throat> the main reason is that what I when I'm talking and I say, oh, addiction this or addiction that, 
that is very personal to people. Uh, so what I, what I mean when I say that might be something very different than what you mean when you say that. Uh, whereas if we use a technical term like substance use disorder, I know exactly what I mean and you know exactly what I mean. So there's a diagnostic uh, manual that therapists and providers use um, to, to help uh, understand you know, what people are suffering from. And it has very clear criteria uh, for what substance use disorder is. Uh, so okay. I, I think it just takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. Uh, and the word addiction and the word addict has a lot of negative connotations, um, yeah. you know, particularly over the last 40 years uh, with the drug war. It's night after night uh, of putting people who use drugs on television and, and vilifying them. And we'll talk about that too, maybe the history of how we got to the stigmatization and criminalization where we are now. Uh, yeah. But in general, what I'm going to talk about uh, is substance use disorder, uh, more particularly severe substance use disorder, which is on the, the more extreme end of the spectrum uh, and has more of the criteria. And sometimes I just refer to it as uh, chaotic drug use. Okay. Uh, that just seems like a nice lay term. Okay. Okay. So yeah, and, I'm here to talk about chaotic drug use and, and responses to it. Okay, and we'll and and we'll get into if you don't mind, I'd like to a little later get into exactly the chaotic uh, substance abuse and, and kind of mm -hmm. just um, because people are going to be just just like me. I I think I know, I think I know about this, but in 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 our volley back and forth, I began to really. I mean, I knew I didn't know as much as as I could. I should know or could know. But in our volley, I began to really understand that I don't know hardly anything about it. And I would like to think that I know a little bit more about it than most people. So, um, you know, we're really going to have to, to educate uh, people today. Um, and I'd like to go into that a little deeper. Um, I, I'd like to ask you, I, I know that, can I, can I read, do you mind if I read the statement that you gave me in the email about your personal story? Sure, that's fine. I, I found it very profound, and I want people to understand where you're coming from. Um, we had talked about sharing your story, and uh, you you had said, and I'm, I'm quoting here, I'm a little leery of only talking about my personal experience because SUD is complicated, and what worked for me will not likely work for others. My personal experience is anecdotal and good fodder for a story. I would be happy to share it but I'm not sure it'd be very helpful to others who are suffering or watching loved ones suffer. There's so many dying and confused and at a loss for how to move forward when someone they know is caught in the grips of addiction. It feels like it would be a shame not to answer those questions. That my friend is, is poetic, very poetic. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I wanted to read that word for word people to know. I think that clearly demonstrates where your heart is at in all of this. And I, I really wanted to start here because I do want you to share your story, but I want people to know that we're sharing your story because you have a story to tell. Um, and we talked about that a little bit before we started recording, that, uh, you know, about identifying the trauma and, and moving forward. And I think that's a key piece. One, one of the things in, in my podcast that I focus on is awareness. Awareness is always, always the key to the next level, right? If, we, if we're not aware, we can't level up. Not that there are other things involved, but despite whatever tools you use, it has to be used in conjunction with awareness or, or it, 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 it's doomed to fail. So I want you to share your story, if you don't mind, and um, 
and and then we'll move from there. But I wanted people to understand where you're coming from because this, this is very personal to you, isn't it? It is personal. Um, I guess what I'm what I'm doing in general is harm reduction, and and I hope that from what you just read and the tone, really all I want is to be in a position to be helpful uh, if I can at all. Uh, and to not leave people abandoned to suffer and to die. Uh, and, and unfortunately, again, because of the stigma and the criminalization, people who use drugs are often left in that position. Um, I was trying to think of outside of people who are experiencing homelessness, I, I couldn't think of another group of people who we just actively hate on, right? Who, yeah. who just, again, if I bring up, you know, a heroin user, it's like, oh, we should just lock them all up. We should take their kids away. We should make sure that they don't have jobs. We should, and, and I was thinking about it and I thought the only other population that's treated that badly uh, and vi villainized that much is, is like ISIS, yeah. <laughs> you know, where we can just be like, we should kill them, literally, like go out yeah. and, and, and get them out of our society. Um, so I, I think the story, starts there the reason that i'm doing the work that i'm doing right now um because really what i'm doing is providing medical services to people when i'm doing harm reduction I, I operate a needle exchange we give out naloxone which is the opioid overdose reversal drug uh, we try to test people for hep c hiv uh, and we, we just try to keep people healthy alive and connected and and because the system is set up the way it is it falls on people who are using drugs to take care of each other. Um, so because of this constant uh, vilification, um, we're not able to access hospitals. We're not able to be honest with our families and loved ones about what's happening with us. We're not able to, to tell the institutions that should help us what's actually going on with us out of fear for, for punishment. Um, so the way I got into this was um, for about, 20 years I was an IV drug user. And that doesn't mean necessarily that I was in chaotic drug use that whole time. Uh, it started, um, you know, I, I started using drugs when I was about 11. Uh, and I, I actually, um, I think like, I, one of the first drugs I took was LSD. And I, I look back now and I think, who sold me LSD when yeah. I was 11? But, but I look at 11 year olds right now in my life and I think there, there's no, there's never an instance where that person, an 11 year old should be taking any drug. And again, that type of drug. No. Uh, and what was going on in my life, right? Where I was, A, had access and B, a willingness and, and C, you know, the freedom or, or lack of supervision to do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting the vast majority of people who have severe substance use disorder or live in chaotic drug use, whatever you want to call it, um, have high ACE scores. Are you familiar with the, the ACE scores? Yeah, actually, um, after we're done talking today, I'm going to schedule a podcast with someone talking about ACE scores. So, um, Good. Yeah. Good. For the audience, uh, the ACE score is the adverse childhood experience. Um, and And these don't have to be the most horrific experiences. Clearly, like, you know, being in a village where genocide took place is going to be one of those. Uh, but it's, it started, um, they were researching health outcomes. Uh, and when they were researching those outcomes, they saw uh, similarities in people's histories when they had negative health outcomes. Uh, so years and years later, and millions of dollars, 30 years of studies, it's thoroughly researched. Uh, there's been a, a, 
a connection established between your adverse childhood experience score and the likelihood of being a sexual predator or I'm sorry, I should say perpetrator, uh, being a sexual perpetrator, uh, being uh, someone who perpetrates domestic violence, uh, being someone who uses drugs, uh, illicit drugs, being someone who commits suicide. And they showed a correlation, a, a very strong correlation. So for example, a person that scores a six or higher on their ACE is 4,600% more likely to be an IV drug user. Wow. And, and if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, Brad, you're, you're three times as likely to develop cancer if you keep doing this, you're, you're going to be a whole oh, man. Three, <laughs> I got to stop yeah. doing this. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> then again, like 46 times. So, so I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to argue with people about the personal responsibility involved with people who use drugs. But if I'm 46 times more likely to become an IV drug user, it's almost a done deal, right? If I didn't become an IV drug user, it would have been, uh, it would have been remarkable uh, and luck, right? It wouldn't have been by my own good, you know, my own doing. Yeah. So, so when I took the A score, I scored an eight. Um, and that, you know, obviously put me in that percentile that's going to be much more likely. Well, it actually, it spelled out a lot. It helped me understand a lot of what happened in my life. Um, so I started using drugs at this young age. Uh, I was taken advantage of by teachers, uh, by neighbors, uh, both sexually and, and physically abused by them. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was bullied to a point. I was bullied. We'll just say that. Um, and I used to kind of downplay all that stuff. I was like, well, you know, he didn't. It's not like he penetrated me. <laughs> you know, uh, it, which you is know, a natural response. I, yeah. I, I know. Or you know, one of them was a female neighbor, and I was like, "Well, I was a female neighbor," you know, and like right. it was. You know, we didn't have like we didn't have coitus. You know, it was all foreplay stuff. <laughs> it's just right. the point is that these, and I'll use the word predator, but these predators like saw somebody that was vulnerable and took advantage of them for their own sexual gratification. Right. The point right. is. Uh, that when I should have been able to go to help for teachers, instead teachers were sending me passes to get me called down uh, so that the students that were there could have free reign beating the shit out of me. Um, so, so clearly I didn't feel safe. Um, I, I was removed from my home uh, by family for neglect uh, when I was like two. Um, I kept running away and acting out. Uh, then I found drugs. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, when I found drugs, finally, I, I finally had those friends and I had some connection. And again, some of those people you know, right? And yeah, we were like, that's how you and I came together. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I had a reason. I had, a, I had like connection for the first time in my life. That feeling of like alienation and something seriously wrong with me. I wouldn't. You know, the, the reason I'm being treated like this is because there's something wrong with me. So I'm carrying all the shame. Right. Uh, we could do a whole podcast about why we should be shame. carrying oh, shame, yeah. right? And shame is it's a huge part of all of this. Um, so the neglect. I don't think people understand that the shame is self-perpetuating. No matter what what's happened to us, whether, you know, I, I talk about the trauma that I've sustained in my life. Some of it, it was self-created. I, I've done. A, I've made a lot of horrible decisions that have negatively affected my life. But what people don't understand, when you come from a place of trauma and the shame is so prevalent, 
that it doesn't matter if someone does something to you or you do something to yourself, which I'm sure you're going to get into this, mm-hmm. it perpetuates the shame and the shame gets heavier. And the heavier the shame gets, the more likely you are to make an adverse decision that's going to further negatively affect your life mm-hmm. and, and can continue the shame. And it, it, it builds and builds and builds. It, it does. Yeah. And there is a certain point. Of course, there's personal responsibility in, in all of our lives. Right. And, and I'm never going to deny that. Uh, there's also uh, well-researched documentation that if I live in trauma and I'm living in chaos, I develop certain skills to survive that. Okay. That's right. So, so then when I'm removed from that environment, all of a sudden, all of my life skills are no longer useful. And I'm at a loss of what to do. And oftentimes people will recreate drama and chaos because that's what they're, that's what they're, they've learned how to do their whole life. Yeah. Um, it's, it's neural pathways. It's, it's, you know, reinforcing the, the behaviors that we have. It, it's just like, and, and the, the example I use all the time is tying our shoes. You know, we tie our shoes every morning and you don't think about tying your shoes. We just tie our shoes. It's normal behavior. It's, it's what we do. Every time you put on your shoes, you naturally instinctively just tie them without thinking it, it's become ingrained in your behavior and so it's a very simple analogy but it, it's the same thing in all types of behavior in our interaction with our relationships and, other, and in particularly within our relationships with other people because all of this in a great way always boils down to the connection or lack of connection and how we how we interact with certain people based on 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 our previous uh, on our childhood and our previous uh, um, interaction so i didn't mean to cut you off there Oh, no, that's okay. I, I mean, I was thinking, like, basically, I could guess I could sum it up then. I, like, I learned how to tie my shoes together, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like that. And, and that's just, like, what, you know, how yeah. I operated in the world. Uh, but but I when I found drugs, uh, I found meaning and purpose, and I found escape. Um, you know, I used, to, I used to make up this fantasy land. I used to go home to my mom and tell her about all the friends I had, and none of it was true, right? This girlfriend I had, I just had this whole fantasy world. And then when I started doing drugs, I actually had friends, you know, I had people that wanted to like smoke pot and break into the neighbor's garage and steal some booze. And, you know, unfortunately we got caught breaking into the neighbor's garage (laughs) and uh, and I ended up at juvenile, uh, which, so that was my introduction to the criminal, the carceral system. Yeah. Um, And I I remember this very, like, I remember this very, this experience. I got, I got beat up when I was there. Like a lot of bad things happened when I was there, but the most poignant thing that happened, uh, I was 14. I was very late bloomer too. So I was incredibly ashamed of my body. I got a lot of, I got teased a lot for that, for being very small and prepubescent. Uh, but they, they had me in a room, male and female correctional officers. They stripped me down and they started spraying me with, um, with delousing. And they had me to like turn around and spread my cheek. And I just remember like, I, I just remember, I just remember being feeling so alone. Like my family couldn't do anything. Uh, These teachers were fucking with me. These adults and neighbors, uh, my peers, and and now the state, right? This is what the state does for me. The state throws me into a cage. And I'd had some involvement before. We we had DCS called uh, because of neglect when I was a little bit older, when I first moved to Indiana. Uh, So I had a DCS caseworker and a therapist and that was a good but in general i just didn't feel like i could trust people um and and i was in and out of juvenile i ended up dropping out of school and when we start looking at my a score all of this is almost predicted i'm not going to finish school i'm going to have trouble with the law 
I'm gonna have you know sexual difficult not difficulties but problems around sex. I'm I'm more likely to start using drugs, and all of it just started happening. So I was in and out. I started using IV drugs with a, a, another classmate. Uh, a lot of my class ended up uh, working at strip clubs and becoming IV drug users pretty soon, yeah. even while they were still in school. Uh, so when I was 17, I started using IV drugs. I had done acid. I had been in and out of rehab, in and out of juvenile. Uh, I moved back to New York and I lived on the streets there, lived in like some homeless shelters and um, uh, like a transitional housing for teens. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I came back, I tried to join the military and this was, uh, I'm, I'm old, so the Reagan was still <laughs> the president. Yeah. Uh, but there were a lot of cutbacks and they weren't taking people that didn't graduate high school. So I tried to, uh, I, they told me though, if I got a certain amount of college credits that I could, I scored really high on my ASVAB. And they said, if I got college credits, uh, that I could come in and, and be an officer if I wanted to go to officer school uh, or pick whatever I wanted to out of those three years. And uh, so I went and I found I loved school. I scored really high on my GED. Uh, I got a lot of grants to be able to go first to IUPUI and then transfer down to IU, the main campus down okay. in Bloomington. Uh, and I just loved it. I, I loved learning. Uh, and I thought, well, I don't want to join the military. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to join the military to get out of what I was in, which was like, you know, bust on my ass working 50 hours a week at Little Caesars, you know, getting fucked up with my friends. Um, so, so yeah, I ended up going down there and my drug use actually curtailed a lot. Uh, and this is another thing that people don't think about when they're talking about uh, substance use. They usually think like it's a straight line, right? Of like yeah. experimental use to chaos, but actually it's like, it can be all over the place and it can be all over the place with depending on what drug it is, at what point in my life, in what form it is, what setting I'm in. So when I go down to IU Bloomington, uh, you know, binge drinking is the norm there. Right. So I just, I put down the, the needle and I put down the heavier drugs and I was taking mushrooms and drinking with my friends and smoking weed. Uh, and that worked uh, for a while. Uh, but unfortunately, I just have built a little different than most of them. Most of them were able to put that down and move on in their life. Uh, after about four years, I was dismissed uh, for, I would get straight A's and then just stop going to class. Uh, so I was dismissed for academic uh, for not passing my classes, and I went right back to it. Um, you said you I, four years. Four. You did four years there. I did four years. Yeah, but I don't. I don't have a degree. I was close. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I shouldn't. Honestly, I shouldn't have even been there. I. I needed just personally. I needed more support. <laughs> uh, I. I. You know, I was able to handle it academically, but I just didn't have. I didn't have any time in my life where I was. You know this is when you study and these are, this is how you regiment a schedule. And this is how you make sure that you're responsible and doing the things that you need to do to, to show up. Yeah. Uh, and I just didn't have those skills. You know, luckily today I have those skills and I utilize them. Yeah. Um, so th things, things again, because they go back and forth on the spectrum, they quickly devolved. Uh, and, and within a few years, I desperately wanted to stop using drugs. And I, I, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be able to, I just, I'd seen all my friends, you know, they put it down. They did oh, They did the same drugs I did, sometimes in the same way, the same amount, and they just put them down, and then they became lawyers, and they put them down, and they went to work for the CDC, or they put them down, did all these yeah. things, and I, I just did never assume that I wouldn't be able to. 
so long story short, I struggled for about five years uh, in and out of psych wards and, and detoxes and, and mental hospitals, uh, just trying to get a grip on this thing. And I just couldn't. And, and again, well, I'm not going to go into detail about like how I am not, you know, in chaotic drug use. I will say that one thing, one part was I needed a non-judgmental community that I could connect with. Yeah. And, and so the beginning of that story is like, I didn't have those connections in my life. I barely even thought I was a human being. Uh, and, and the end of the story is like, I feel fully connected. I have a vibrant community that I'm a part of. I have multiple vibrant communities that I'm a part of. And at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do with the work that I'm doing is build community for people who are using drugs uh, so that they can, they can start to experience that connection and start to make small positive changes uh, in their lives. You know? Yeah. And I, I love the word connection. I'd like to, I'd like to hit on that for a second because um, in, in the psychological community, the understanding is, is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Right. Yeah, there's a Johan Hari uh, TED talk and a, and a book that he does, Chasing the Dragon, <clears throat> where he talks about that. He talks about uh, a lot of our drug policy was based on some studies that a person did with rats in a cage with cocaine. Uh, and, and they've done follow-up studies since then uh, that if you have a rat in a cage with cocaine and water and that's it, well, I mean, I don't think you have to be a rat to be like, yeah, I'll probably go for the cocaine. <laughs> uh, but if you created a cage that had other rats and wheels and different avenues right. for adventure and connection and engagement in life, uh, those studies showed that people, that, that the rats would do the cocaine or not, uh, but it didn't become problematic. Yeah. And, and we have that, we have little instances of that in our history. If we look at like when Vietnam veterans came back from, uh, from the right. war, you know, they, they had a, such a high prevalence of heroin use, uh, what you would say is heroin addiction. And yet when they came back, the vast majority of them just moved on in their lives and didn't re-engage with uh, using heroin. Yeah, and, it's and, fascinating. Yeah, one of the theories on that is because they had something to come back to. They had families to come back to. Uh, they had, you know, there were good middle-class jobs. There was a sense of community. Uh, and, yeah. and, and maybe part of the reason we're in the situation where we are with, you know, almost 80,000 overdose deaths last year uh, is, is because of that lack of opportunity for real community, for real connection, uh, for, for being able to be vulnerable, for, uh, like you said, not floundering around, but being aware of our emotions, being mindful of who we are, how we're operating in the world, how we connect with others. Um, and I, I think, I, I think there's, I think there's, there's a correlation, there has to be a correlation between the rise of technology and, and the statistic that we're talking about. And, and it seems to just be getting worse. And I know there's a lot of other factors, so I don't want to just blame technology. But my point with the technology is that we're more connected now than we've ever been, but we're less personally connected than we've ever been. You know, we'll we'll text each other. It, we'll, we'll be in the same house and text text someone that's in another room rather than than than, than talking with them. And um, you know, families watching TV while they're eating, and I mean, just the list goes on and on. And so we're, every day we get further and further from that human connection, which is the rat in the in the cage syndrome that you're talking about. Um, and I think that's a, um, anyway, I won't beat that to death. No, a hundred percent. So in Iceland, they started programs. They want to keep kids off drugs. <clears throat> so a, a couple of thoughts here. 
one way to keep kids off drugs is to uh, create worlds where we don't have as many adverse childhood experiences, right? So, so bring that down. If you want to talk about prevention of drug use, let's talk about prevention of trauma. Let's talk about prevention of untreated mental illnesses. The, not only the technology, but the, the coping skills were not teaching. I was never taught coping skills. I was only... I only reacted to my environment and I, I, I emulated the adults in my life who were mentally unhealthy because of their adverse childhood experiences and who they were simply emotionally reacting with, with no awareness whatsoever. And so the, the changes that I've made in my life, my recovery really began about 15 years ago. And it's all been through awareness and, and particularly planning, planning out who I wanted to be. But more importantly, I, I was, I, I was, insatiable about learning coping mechanisms and how to handle certain things, how to, how to look at them differently. And meditation has been a big part of it. And, you know, there's affirmations, there's so many different things, but we're not teaching these skills to children. We're not teaching them how to handle being bullied, to understand that a bully is probably bullying you because he feels shitty about himself. And, and you need to understand not a, not to forgive that person, but to have enough compassion to not take it as personally as you took it and be able to work yourself out of, from, the, from that ground and, and self-soothe and, and we don't develop those mechanisms. So we get into high school and everyone is fighting for their emotional life and all, all they're doing is trampling all over each other. And you yeah, get with, to, with no idea that they're fighting for their emotional no, life, right? No you wouldn't idea. be able to articulate that at all. A absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And the only way to make ourselves feel better is through competition because school is nothing but competition with your grades and your sports. And so the more you can trample people, the better you're going to feel about yourself. And people are just slamming into each other and just doing all this damage. And then we get out and we're adults and we're like, well, now what? We'll so, compete more, Brad. I mean, we're going to compete more. I got to have a, bit, a little bigger house than Brad. I got to have a little bit nicer car. I got to have... You and know, if you don't, you suck ass and you should do drugs and make yourself feel better. And that's anecdotal. It's, I, it, I, but that's, no, it's your fault too, right? There's, we right. live in a, a supposed meritocracy where you're going to, the more work you put in, the more you'll get out of it. And, 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 we you're, just, and you're lazy and, and you're, you know, you don't care and you're stupid and you'd rather do drugs and neglect your kids. And, and that's, that's why, that's why it's okay to hate homeless people the way that right. they're hated, right? Because it's their fault. And if I like look at a homeless person, I say, actually, maybe that isn't their fault. Maybe they didn't have, maybe it was one accident and their insurance ran out and they went through their savings in like three months, which any of us right. could do. And now they can't get back. But if I honestly look at their humanity, then I realize, wait, I'm at risk for that too. That's but right. there's this false sense of security in it when I'm like, oh, I worked really hard. I put myself in this position to be safe. That's right. Uh, and they didn't. So I don't owe them anything. I don't even owe them any compassion. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That's exactly right. Because if you are at risk and you have a difference of opinion, if you look down on those people, not realizing you are at risk. If someone doesn't teach you that you're at risk and then something happens and you find suddenly find yourself in that predicament, now the shame sets in. That the I'm internalized. Not, yeah, the they internal told me shame. that I'm better than this. I'm smart. I should have been a doctor. I should have been a movie star. I should have been president. And now I'm not, and now I'm, and now I just got fired from a job. My wife let me, whatever the case may be, and the shame becomes perpetual. Yeah, I I, I listen. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Audible books lately when I'm walking my dog. And one of the things that they said was that, uh, you know, we try to validate ourselves externally, 
uh, through achievements, through, uh, through attributes that we have. And really what we should do is just have authentic emotions, be able to experience and articulate authentic emotions. And uh, I had to rewind that like, I'm not even kidding, six or seven times because it's so far out of my league. What does that even mean? How do I do that? How am I able to like get through uh, all the layers and layers and layers of, of shame and hiding and trying to not be hurt uh, to actually experience just authentic emotions? And yeah. it seems so simple. Um, I can't do it alone. I can't do it without that community and, and that connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I don't think people, <clears throat> so I'm a mindfulness instructor, right? Um, and this goes back to that awareness. And I still, I mean, I'm a mindfulness instructor and I still catch myself, my thoughts racing. And I still, I still catch myself and say, my thoughts are racing. I need to, for them to stop racing. And then I catch myself two minutes later doing it again. And oftentimes it's, it's, it's always comparison of, of, of someone else's car, what someone else has done, what I, you know, what I was, the worst is what I was supposed to do, where I should be. What I've accomplished so far in my life is not near where I could have been had I not done this, you know, that whole guilt and shame. And those thoughts, to go back to your authentic emotions, those thoughts aren't real. They're, they're and I know that's, that's a hard concept for people to understand, but they're simply manufactured. We, we, they become real by the energy we put behind them. All right. So, um, you know, Henry Ford building, uh, the, well, whoever created the first automobile, right? That, that was a concept. That was a thought. It wasn't real. And it wasn't until someone put the energy, the time, the energy, and the resources behind it to create the first automobile that the automobile actually became real. Before that, it was just a thought. And we, all, we have millions of them all day long that don't matter. But we choose the ones we want to put energy into and we want, want to believe. And these are the ones, the competition we're talking about, the comparison, which ultimately a lot of times, especially people with, with uh, adverse childhood experiences, um, often we never measure up, right? Never. I or mean, never. literally, right? I was tiny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we, we're never good enough, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter what we accomplish. There's always, there's that battle that there's always something else. Mm -hmm. And being able to to recognize that through awareness, be able to recognize that and step away from it. not necessarily make it go away. I think people have this misunderstanding that 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 it's going to go away and one day everything's going to be better. It doesn't really go away as much as we choose not to invest our energy back into it and and be and have the awareness to make the decisions to begin to not run from it, not hide from it, not make excuses, not act out, whatever, but to sit with that and examine it see what it feels like and that's where the authentic emotions begin to come in and understand why do i feel this way what why did why am i upset that person said said that to me why am i upset this person looked at me or, or, or whatever the case may be and, and typically for me when i'm very upset it has nothing to do with my girlfriend today right it has everything to do with something that happened in my childhood so sure. again, having that awareness to be like, you know, I'm really triggered right now. It has nothing to do with the situation right now that I'm in presently. Yeah. Uh, it's this, it's this old thorn that's inside me uh, that's covered again in layer and layer and layer of supposed protection that becomes a prison for me. Um, yeah. When you were talking earlier, I was thinking about so there's a couple of books I've been reading. Uh, one is called The Untethered Soul, 
Uh, another is I'm listening to Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now again. Uh, and a guy named Sam Harris, uh, who does a really wonderful podcast, and, and he also has a waking up uh, meditation app. But but the idea with, with all of these three, like, come together with this idea that I'm not my thoughts and my emotions. Uh, you know, my thoughts arise just the same as a noise in the environment would arise. And, and, and they'll pass as long as I don't grab onto them, as you said, and, like, nurture them and ruminate. Um, so my job... And for me, experiencing emotions and thoughts authentically is to, to drop back. There's a, there's a point of, of sitting where I can observe those non-judgmentally, and I'm no longer caught up and, and prey to them. Um, and if I can remember to do that throughout the day, to drop back as the observer, right? And, and right. I'm not, I am not this synonymous with my thoughts and emotions, Again, non-judgmentally see them and then move forward. Uh, and, and on top of that, to do the work with the past about those experiences that are being triggered and work through those. I've done like EMDR, uh, a lot of like open chair therapy and things like that to, to work through those things so that I can experience uh, those emotions, right? So rather than hiding from it and putting on more and more layers and covering up the thorn, I just stop and I just experience the emotion. And, and emotions don't last that long uh, if we're not ruminating and judging and beating ourselves up. That's right. I, I heard someone say the other day, like, if, if, if somebody else, if you talk to me the way I talk to myself, we would have some serious problems. Yeah. I would never allow you to talk to me the way I talk to myself. That's right. And so, so why do I allow me to continue to talk to me like that? Again, that's a, uh, I'm also, I know I'm listening to a lot of books right now, but there's a book called The Burden of Shame by Bradshaw uh, that really delves into all of the shame that we carry around. Stemming back to the religions we're brought up in and, and, and on and on and on. Well, all these fictions we live in about who we should be and how we don't measure up. Um, yeah. But I, I think that's, to, to bring it back to, to substance use, I think that is the crux of the, of the problem is I didn't know how to do any of that and drugs allowed me to continue to operate in the world without all of that pain and anguish. I didn't, I wasn't able to like cover it. I was covering it up with drugs, right? Right. And I, I think that's where things get really confusing. So let's say that you're a therapist and I show up in your office and, and I've got track marks and I'm, you know, I'm nodding out. You know, oftentimes the therapist will say, you've got to stop using drugs. I cannot have you showing up like this and I, we're not going to get anywhere until you stop using drugs and what they don't understand I wouldn't have shown up to the office if I wasn't using drugs right I would have I, I am 100% certain that I would have committed suicide years years ago if it hadn't met for for drugs like drugs saved my life literally and then they didn't right and then they yeah. turned on me and then everything that they gave me they took away uh, and just left me this uh, empty shell of a human being. Um, but but they were essential. So that's the kind of attitude that I think is much more helpful if somebody in your life is using drugs chaotically, is understanding, A, they are resilient because they've made it this far. B, they're using the drugs for a reason. Oftentimes, they don't know where the ambivalence lies. But if I can have an honest conversation with them, we can do really simple things to find out, to let them discover on their own what that ambivalence is. And then they can start to get an idea of why they're actually using the drugs. 
And then when that happens, we can be like, how can we replace, you know, whatever it is that's, that whatever role that drugs are filling, what can we do maybe for a healthier a replacement that you can engage in rather than just like, you've got to stop using drugs. I, I yeah. Again, for me personally, I knew I had to stop using drugs, right? It was on my agenda, Brad. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd be like, don't do drugs anymore. Yeah. This is not working. Uh, and yet there I would be like later on uh, using the drugs again. Again, with no idea why. I just had no idea about any of the things that I know today. Um, and I don't even know if knowing right away would have been helpful. You know, things are revealed as as I can handle them. Right. Um, but I do know that if I if I would have had someone to talk to in a non-judgmental, non-coercive, uh, honest way, uh, that we could have started working through some of those ambivalences and I could have seen some of the contradictions that I had in my thinking. Uh, and, you know, I got hepatitis C pretty early on. I think from the first time I injected drugs, I got hepatitis C, which is a, which is a chronic and deadly disease that affects the liver. Um, mm. It's actually the number one infectious killer in the country. Uh, wow, and people don't, that. yeah, people, it kills more people than the next 63 infectious diseases combined. And people don't know it because it primarily affects IV drug users. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, something as simple as like, I could have avoided getting hepatitis C. Uh, so many of my friends could have avoided um, fatal overdose. You know, I think about, you know, we have, a, we have quite a few, it seems like an inordinate amount of common friends who have either committed suicide or yeah. uh, had fatal drug overdoses. Yeah. And, well, and it's, just, it's unrelated, that, but I want to throw in teenage pregnancies yeah. as well. Sure. sure. In, in, in that small community, the, yeah. the suicides, the overdoses, and the teenage pregnancies are uh, abnorm abnormally disproportionate. And, and I don't know if there's a vortex in Speedway that makes it that way. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it was nonetheless. And, and yeah. I, I couldn't help but notice like the people that I know that ended up succumbing to, to suicide, you know, they were all using drugs. Yeah. And, and they were using drugs from everything I could tell problematically. So again, I think those two things are inter very, very much interrelated. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, like, I like how you explained the process that just a few minutes ago when you went went through what you would do i think people need to understand that that what you do so and 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 i and <clears throat> i'm going to use this term very carefully right so i have i have my own adverse childhood experiences that are pretty pretty severe and pretty traumatic and i have my own form of recovery but substance abuse was not one of my problems so i, I want to be very clear about that but i know in my situation and I've talked to enough people who have, have overcome al alcoholism and, and drug abuse that in my situation, it seems that, with, and you, you, you're the expert, so I want you to weigh in on this, that we know that just telling someone to stop, like, like interventions only work to a point because if, if the abuser doesn't want to stop, they won't stop. Mm -hmm. And which leads me to point through this process that you're talking about, that the user has to go through an internal process to reach a, a point of no return, to reach that 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 rock bottom point where they have they have an epiphany, where a, a moment of clarity. But they have to go through that process. And it sounds like that your job, through the human connection, is to help accelerate that process to get them 
to have to to see a reason to live, to understand why they're behaving the way they are, the things that are going on, to, to the information that they may glean over. I'm going to get. I'm just going to make up a number, but over a 10 year period that they can do rather quickly with you over you know a couple of years or a couple of months, whatever the case may be. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I'd say it's fair. I, I um, Just really quickly, though, I want to throw out there that even if somebody never decides to stop using drugs problematically, we can still do things uh, right that are good for them and for us, like make sure they don't get HIV, hep C, make sure they don't die. Because it's, yeah. you know, even though we other people who use drugs, this is this whole uh, public health is public. Uh, right. So if we can even if someone has no inkling at all to have any kind of change like that in their lives, it's still good to make sure that they don't uh, get diseases, to make sure that they're connected, make sure that they're housed, that they're employable. Um, but what you described and what I was describing, it's not just, a, it's not like armchair, uh, it's not an armchair thing at all. It, it's motivational interviewing um, is a really important part of this. There's this thing called trans-theoretical models of behavior change. And it's about 30 years of research, uh, 150,000 research participants, and millions and millions of dollars has gone into it. And, and basically what they're saying is, is kind of what you said. The change has to be internally motivated. So if I want long-lasting behavioral change, I have to want long-lasting behavioral change. Uh, what we tend to do with people who use drugs is use coercive and, and punishing methods. <clears throat> and that doesn't work. Not only doesn't it work because it goes against human nature, and human nature is that long-lasting change has to be internally motivated, and I have to come to my own conclusions usually uh, to, to do that. Um, but it also goes against everything that I was talking about with the criteria for substance use disorder. So of the 11 criteria, nine of them have to do with the person using against their will, right? So they want to stop, but they can't, or using despite negative consequences. So if you have a disorder that's marked by using it against their will, right, or despite negative consequences, what, what logical world does it make sense to give them more negative consequences? Do you know? Why would you use punishment for something that is defined by the fact that punishment doesn't work? And there's a long answer to that question. Uh, that we're not going to have time for today, but it goes back to the roots of most of our drug policy, which is that it was being used to control certain communities. Um, and it was never actually meant to stop drug use. It was meant to control those communities, starting with the Chinese, moving through Mexican immigrants and uh, into the African-American. If we look at the way the crack epidemic was, was handled compared to the way the opioid, it's a wildly different, right? And, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why that is. And, and, and we don't have time to get into this. And I would, love, I would love to kind of set the stage here and have another conversation about this. But um, just some terms to throw out, because I, I know a little bit about this. You probably know way more than I do. Um, the broken window policy, for example. Um, the broken window. Are you familiar with the broken window theory? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a it was a major New York policing initiative uh, yeah. that said if you if you took care of the small things and really enforced those, uh, that that you would have less violent crime. That it would that's right. kind of go right. up the chain. If you, uh, if you arrested a criminal for breaking a window, then he would be less likely to because of the punishment. He would be less likely to commit a crime in the future. Uh, we see now that 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 popped up in in what the late seventies, uh, 
early 80s uh, was part of the, uh, the uh, right in time for the crack ed epidemic uh, that we saw in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and we, since then, we're, we're incarcerating, what, uh, a million people a year on drug arrests? Um, 87% of those drug arrests are for simple possession. That's, that's just for having the drug. Um, so we have more people in prison now than any country in, in the history of the earth. Uh, there are more people behind bars than there were in Stalinist Russia, right? You and I grew up at the same time. Like Stalinist Russia was the yeah. most repressive regime that ever existed. And yeah. yet here, here we are uh, proclaiming to be the land of the free with more people incarcerated than, than uh, the worst totalitarian regime that's ever yeah. existed. And that doesn't even count two times that amount are on some kind of surveillance outside of, uh, of the carceral system, right? So whether that's ankle bracelets or probation. Um, so it's massive. It's, it's interesting, 2.2 million people are employed by the prison industrial complex. Yeah, that's so why I was getting ready to talk about the uh, for-profit prisons. Not even for-profit, even, even just regular prisons. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you have 2.2 million people who are dependent on a system right. for their survival, it, again, it doesn't have to be a profit thing. It's just like how many rural communities depend on the prison in their county, right, to, to live? Yeah. Uh, how, how many companies like, uh, I think it's our, our Mark and, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the game show host. Bob Barker actually owns and produces like clothes and soap, the Bob Barker company. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, interesting, right? Yeah, very, very, very interesting. When, so when, so when there's you, a lot of moneyed interest. A, a lot of moneyed interest, and when you when you take into consideration um, the broken window policy, the the prison uh, industrial complex, and the and the for profit prisons, I mean that should not be overlooked. Yes. You have people actually making money off incarcerating poor people. Um, there's a lot to be said about that. With with the uh, rumors of the CIA involvement in the drug distribution um, through, in particular through the 80s and 90s with the crack epidemic. We begin to, to see a picture of this more than just a war on drugs. It seems to be a war on poverty. Yeah, let me let me throw out one one instance that's not uh, that's thoroughly documented. There was a guy named John Ehrlichman in the Nixon administration, and in the late '90s, he was being interviewed, uh, and and the the interviewer asked him about the war on drugs, and he basically said, "Wait, you're asking me, did we know that it wasn't about the drugs? Of course we did." Right. The Nixon yeah. administration had two enemies. The enemies were the black power movement and the hippie movement, the anti-war, uh, anti-Vietnam movement. And Ehrlichman said they couldn't make it illegal to have long hair or be black, but they could make their common pleasure illegal. So, again, they got they they made drugs. They vilified uh, people who use drugs night after night. And he says this in the quote, night after night, we got on the news and vilified them and people that look like them and their leaders. And I think it's safe to say that there's not a very good anti-war movement uh, in the in the world today, given That's how right. many wars we're in and how long we've been in those wars. Yeah. Uh, and the black community was decimated, right? That that the increase in the number of incarcerated people was almost was was mostly taken on uh, by the black community. Yeah, and cause and cause level after uh, generation after generation intergenerational trauma within that community. Yeah, you want to talk about creating new A scores? Absolutely. You know, you know, was your parent incarcerated is one of those questions. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, we, we are, which is one of the reasons that I'm so vehemently against uh, using the criminal justice system to 
address substance use disorder. If we look anywhere else, any other Western country in the world, they they very rarely do it the way we do. If you want a good counterexample, you'll go to Portugal, uh, where they decriminalized everything about 10 years ago, which sounds insane. You can't just decriminalize everything. Well, they did. And they went from having the highest HIV rates to among the lowest, having the highest overdose rates to among the lowest. Not only did they decriminalize, but they took the money that was going into the criminal justice system and put it into, they call it, um, oh, I think it's actualizing or activation programs. So they're right. social programs. So let's say that you're a mechanic uh, and you're using drugs and, and things get out of control. They would pay a garage half of your salary to hire you and get you reintegrated into society, even if you continue to use drugs, right? Wow. And it worked. Uh, so we have examples like Portugal, uh, but that would take such a huge overhaul of our system uh, and, and the common sense uh, that we have right now with the war on drugs and the attitude. Because that 40 years of the war on drugs and all the propaganda isn't just going to go away, right? right. You're going to just snap your fingers and be like, hey, we lied. People who use drugs are actually okay. Uh, and you don't have to vilify them and incarcerate them. They could yeah. be your neighbor and you should let them volunteer at your church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, ironically, we've seen with the legalization of marijuana, we've seen an about turn and no one asks any questions. Everybody's like, oh, okay. I, I don't understand why people aren't looking at the fact that we've been lied to by the federal government for uh, 70, 80 years about, mm -hmm. about the effects of marijuana and that now suddenly we have doctors prescribing. We went from you, you'll go insane and, and all these other problems to to uh, locking people up for years. And, and now the doctors are prescribing. Um, that should be the first clue that that the government's, that they're lying to us. That mm -hmm. we, we need to be smarter than them. We need to look beyond it. The the costs, I, I would imagine Portugal's costs, I, I'd love to see the numbers, but I know that here um, it's, it's almost a trillion dollars that it costs the United States government annually for to treat substance abuse when you take in tobacco, alcohol, illicit drugs, the opioid crisis, that it costs taxpayers almost a trillion dollars with the way we do it now. Yeah, and it's totally ineffective. Again, so this drug war has been happening for 40 years and we're at, we had more drug overdose deaths than ever in history, right? HIV, again, the hepatitis C epidemic that's happening across the country, that it's a silent killer that nobody even talks about. Uh, mass incarceration, all of these things have failed miserably. So yeah. I, what my friend Dan Big used to say, he's like, he's so good. He'd be like, let's just set that down for a minute. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's just like, we've tried that. We gave it a good shot. Let's just put that down and try something different. Yeah. And the good thing is I, almost everything that I've shared today with, with listeners and with you has, has peer reviewed research. I'm not talking about like data that some treatment center came up with or a business came up. I mean, research that's been looked at by other experts and vetted. Um, so we know we can decrease uh, fatal overdose. We know we can increase social interaction. We know we can decrease uh, the tr transmission of disease by, by, by installing programs like they're doing in Portugal, by doing more harm reduction like what Southwest Recovery Alliance, my, my organization now is doing, um, by following the lead of countries like Denmark and Amsterdam, and having safe consumption sites. Um, interestingly, about I'll just really quick side note on these safe consumption sites. Uh, oftentimes, uh, 
more conservative people will be like, well, that's just some crazy, like, left-wing, bleeding-heart liberal thing. The first safe consumption site was opened up by the banks in Frankfurt. Uh, and they did it because they were at their wit's end about people injecting drugs outside of the bank. And they were like, I can't do a German accent, right? But they were yeah. like, we're just going to get them a room, <laughs> right? Get a room already. So they got them a room. And then they started noticing uh, these huge benefits, like people weren't dying. Uh, they obviously weren't out in the public place uh, inje injecting their drugs anymore. People were more engaged. They were more likely to... Uh, to seek treatment, they were easier to house, they were had access to social services that they didn't have access to before. Um, and it's not, it's not a crazy idea, you know? Like anyone who's ever been to a bar has been to a safe consumption site. Right. Anyone who's ever like had a, a designated driver, that's harm reduction. I'm going to get drunk, right? You know yeah. I'm gonna get drunk, so I'm just gonna take these precautions. So we're just extending that to all drugs. I like that analogy. And I, I can tell you that um, in, from from my experience, my personal experience, that being able to accept certain things without the shame involved is is necessary for your rehabilitation. Yeah. For you, with my recovery, being able to look in the mirror and understand certain things about my behavior without without that judgment that we were talking about earlier, and it, it seems to me safe consumption sites actually lend credence to that you said that they're more likely to, to to seek treatment so now they're not doing it in a dark alley worried about who's around and what's going on and, and that 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 underbelly that shame that comes along with it now they they've they removed the shame and they and they're in, in a safer spot and it's a little more accepted i don't want to really use the, the term accepted but um they, you just take that negative aspect out of it then they can really look at themselves and say okay so i don't I don't feel that dirty anymore from this. What right. else can I do to maybe improve my life and not, and not. That's it right there. So again, we take this, we make the small positive change and then people can build on that to do the next positive change. Yeah. When what we're asking them to do right now is go from chaotic drug use to total abstinence. Yeah. Right. Which, which again is impossible. So, um, you know, I, I'm 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 a trauma recovery coach and mindfulness instructor, and I actually work with um, I work with college students, uh, graduate students as well. And the human the human nature is to see the big picture and look beyond what's in front of us, and we easily become overwhelmed. And one of the the biggest analogies is people with education, right? If you if you it's hard to look at if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that to look at. I've heard so many people say, I can't do eight years of school and then blah, blah, blah. And, and the trick is, is to compartmentalize, to break that down, right? If you need to go to the top of the staircase, you don't just jump to the top of the staircase. You have to take the steps, the step right in front of you. you and once you're up on that step, let's worry about the next step. And, and I approach that, I use that approach a lot with, with my students. And I think that's, that, that analogy works here, you know, um, with looking at sobriety. I know I know people who said, I can't, I can't do it. I know someone who killed himself because he, he didn't want to go back to rehab. He'd been in and out of rehab. He was going back that morning and killed himself before he ever got there because he was tired. He couldn't do it anymore. And it's that next step. It's the, the, the small thing that you were talking about. And when I've, and everyone I've worked with, when I break it down that way, it takes the pressure off of an outcome. Right. It's enjoying 
it's it's tackling this it's focusing your energy here let's build upon this and it, it takes all that away and the pressure exacerbates the problem if someone's tried to quit doing uh, taking some type of a substance several times and you're like hey all you gotta do is get sober they've already tried that it's not that, it, that approach isn't working which is i think what what you were just saying so um let me whereas whereas if i can say look i know that you've been struggling and i know this that, that you tried before and I know you're not in a position right now uh, to quit. Why don't we get you to, you know, why don't we have you use clean syringes? Why don't we make sure that you have someone there with you? Why don't you just stay in touch with me so that you have someone, one person at least that you can honestly talk to and not like fear retaliation. Yeah. Um, why don't we get you housed? Why don't we allow therapists to work with you even though you're continuing to drug use? Why don't we make sure that you have access to food and employment? And again, once you have a criminal record, it's really hard to, to get any of those things. You're yeah. kind of permanently branded. Absolutely. Uh, so I also thought too, while you were saying that, so this is just for me personally, I tend to look at the big picture and I'm like, you know, we have this system that is set up, we have a system that is designed to fail people. And, and if I stay on that systems level, big picture too long, I will be burnt out and give up uh, because right. I'm just one person. Uh, one voice and I'm trying to organize power to change things but so I also have to step back and say Chris you can create moments of respite for people where they are loved where they have dignity and 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 respect even if it's just for a moment so the only way I can even move forward doing this work is knowing that like the person that walks out after outreach they very well might die they might become incarcerated they might have their kids taken away horrific things might happen and and what i can do is in that moment i can just offer them love that would otherwise not have been there um so, so i think that you're right these small things uh, i need to focus on the now and the small things but keep in mind this bigger picture you know that I, we have to sometime go upstream maybe and find out what the root causes yeah. of these are and yeah. i think you were right with this lack of connection and lack of understanding of our emotions and lack of ability to experience authentic emotions uh, are at the root of it. Yeah, and we live in a society, right, where you see you see LeBron James winning a championship, but you don't see the hours and hours that he put in behind it, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's a champion, but but he puts so much time and energy in behind that. And kids grow up and, and we don't see that. We just see the highlights. Turn on ESPN and you see somebody put up so many points on their, their or whatever the case may be hollywood actors and actresses what your, your, your musician friends um and so we gauge that you know with our own lives we don't have this kind of success we're not really putting in that kind of work and it, oh even worse sometimes i will i will judge my internal life to other people's external life so again whether it's the, the you know the celebrity like i'm I'm thinking about my own in turmoil, inner turmoil and the, all that shame. And I'm looking at them and they, you know, Brad Pitt is so fucking handsome and he's like, he's articulate and he's like nice and charismatic. And like, I'm just this loser who like is having his terrible thoughts and I can't seem to like really actually do anything. Yeah. And so I think Facebook and the social media exacerbates, exacerbates that. Yeah. yeah. Where, where again, I'm like looking, I'm like, Brad's living in Florida, man. It's beautiful down there. And I'm living in Arizona, and people don't know, like, I cried this morning, you know, I, I like, was brought to the verge of tears just because of some personal things, and, yeah. and it's not all roses like that, and, and 
Yeah, so I think that's very astute. And social media actually exacerbates that in two ways, right? So if you just post your happy pictures, that's all everybody sees. And then you're also criticized because you're just posting your happy pictures. But if you post your shit on Facebook, then everybody's like, well, look at these guys. They're crazy. They're posting, you know, you don't put all their business out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you can't for attention, which which is the microcosm of life, right? You're you're always going to piss somebody off. Someone that is always not going to like you trying to make everybody else happy does nothing but make everyone unhappy. Um, and, you know, which is the foundation of the awareness. And, and, and so. Have you listened to much of the Brene Brown stuff? Uh, she I, talks about vulnerability. It's really amazing. And, and there's so many dangers. So again, for me personally, there's a lot of danger if I am going to make myself vulnerable because of my history, I don't trust people. Uh, but, but really, like, I honestly believe what, what you and I share what, what our common link is our shared vulnerability. And, and we yeah. try so hard to, hard, hard to hide that from each other. And it's really the thing that links us together and makes us a human. human I, I, I'd like to touch on that for a second. Yeah. You and I didn't get along. No, <laughs> no, we didn't. No, I, and this is the first time that we've had a real conversation in our entire lives. We spent years coming out of that same system in the same community and the same circle of friends living this chaotic lifestyle trying and that whole slamming into thing each other that i was talking about earlier everybody just trying to do their own thing but i want people to really understand that we have way more in common than we ever realized and we just figured that out in the last 60 minutes had no idea no idea because everybody's trying to they're trying to hide their their, their flaws everybody's putting on their shiny faces and 100 like if you hadn't if you weren't in a place where you could be vulnerable with what's happened to you in your life, you wouldn't yeah. be doing this podcast. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be sitting there talking about my things too. Uh, so right. it's, yeah, right. it's, be- it's beautiful. It just it it opens up for connection. Yeah. And I appreciate you. I, I want you to know that I'm, I'm really glad you joined me today. This was, um, uh, there's a lot of good information here, but before, before we do that, someone has someone in their life that they, they believe is using drugs that they're, and I think your word is problematically or chaotically. What kind of advice do you have for someone to, to approach someone they love or know? So the, the typical advice people get right now is to is you have to practice tough love, right? I mean, that's the common thoughts on it. Um, what, what you and I have been talking about this whole time is connection and you know getting in touch with our emotions and being vulnerable. And tough love doesn't have anything to do with connection. In fact, it's the opposite of connection. So I feel like the advice, while well-meaning, uh, is is actually detrimental to the person. <clears throat> so so my my typical when people call me, when a mom will call me asking, "What should I do about my son?" I'll say, "You should <laughs> you should do everything you can to keep them in your life and loved and and open up uh, dialogue that is able to be honest and non-judgmental." so far as it doesn't cause it doesn't lead to physical emotional or financial problems for you right and everybody's going to have different boundaries for that what i see all too often is that people will say i'm cutting them off and they're not cutting them off because they can't afford it anymore they're cutting them off because they hope if they cut them off that they'll finally hit bottom and then they'll 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 stop right And, and if i could just help them hit bottom then they'll stop well, well, bottom in the age of fentanyl and this terrible overdose is too often death. And yeah. nobody ever recovers from death. That's right. 
Uh, I mean, well, we have some religious traditions that would make yeah. it, but it's very rare to yeah. recover from that, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So, so my message would it's be: It's not an experiment that I want to experiment. With. No, no. Uh, my my message would be uh, that we need to kick the the love up a notch, and it's hard. And the, the I'm not dismissing the the difficulties and the pain and the suffering and the confusion that comes when you're living with someone in chaotic drug use uh, in your life. Yeah. Um, at all. Uh, but what I am saying is that there's so much misunderstanding and internal shame that we need to do our best, better than our best, to make sure that people understand uh, that even though we don't agree with the way they're living, we still accept that it's happening. So I can accept that it is happening the way it is without condoning it, right? I can see people doing things that I wouldn't necessarily prescribe for them uh, and, and still walk with them despite the fact that they're doing things that I seem. So that's, in general, it's, in essence, it's just meeting people where they are uh, and, and opening up that opportunity for conversations about where they are, not leaving them there, uh, but also not like forcing them to be somewhere they are. And again, when it crosses the, the line of emotional, like you can't just can't do it anymore emotionally, then that's a good time to withdraw. When you just can't do it anymore financially, it's a good time to withdraw. But that's about a person's personal needs, not about trying to get somebody else to act in a certain way. It's about self-care. You know, it's about self-care. Boundaries, yeah. Yeah, and if these families if these families engage in harm reduction, so again, if I say you have to stop using drugs, I, I, that's, that's one thing. <laughs> I've given you one thing you can do. And if yeah. I engage in harm reduction, all of a sudden there are thousands of, of things you can do to start making positive change. And as you said earlier, those small things are a foothold for the next thing, are a foothold for the next step, first step. And then I can keep on taking steps. Yeah. That's a really beautiful thing. A lot of families uh, find a lot of relief in harm reduction. Me as a person who used drugs and now as a social service provider or social worker or whatever you want to call me, um, I find a lot of, of uh, relief in that. And that there are all these opportunities so that we can, yeah, just help people live the best possible lives that they can given their, yeah. their current circumstances. So what, what would you, how would you define, uh, how, how would you define the difference between, um, between helping them and enabling them? <clears throat> so it's, it's kind of tricky. Often, let's just, I want to define kind of what enabling is first. Okay. Uh, and, and typically when we're talking about enabling, we're assuming that the person wouldn't be able to continue that behavior if we didn't do what we were doing, right? So I am enabling them. If I, if I withdrew my support or my money or whatever, then they would stop. Uh, and, and I, if you have severe substance use disorder, you are not going to stop. That's right. Right? You're going to, if I don't have a clean needle, I'm going to use a dirty needle. If I don't have money, I'm going to go steal money. If I don't have, uh, what, well, not everyone's going to steal, too. I just see it when right. I do I, the I stigma know. thing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in that sense, I would say that enabling is maybe one of the most dangerous ideas we have floating out there. Um, I, I think that oftentimes I get accused of enabling people by providing sterile equipment uh, or by giving out naloxone. In fact, there was, uh, there was one study, it wasn't peer reviewed, right? But it basically said that when we give out naloxone, it doesn't decrease drug use. In fact, drug use continues. And it was done by economists. And the way they arrived at that was that the people live. 
So since they're still alive, they keep using drugs. Brett, I'm not even making this up, right? So, so that's when we get so myopically focused on like, you have to abstain from drugs. I would rather you die than continue to use drugs. Yeah. Um, so so I, I fully accept that what I do enables people. I enable them to not get HIV. I enable them to not have hepatitis C. I enable them to have connection where there is no connection in their life oftentimes. I enable them access to other social services. Uh, and most importantly, oftentimes because of the opioid overdose drug, uh, I enable them to breathe, right? And to continue to live. Uh, so, so in that sense, I, I fully embrace the, the term enabler and, and yeah, I wanna continue yeah. and expand my enabling. And my, my question was more geared towards someone who may have a loved one. You know, if someone's, you know, people are going to worry about the, the difference between tough love and judgment and the difference between uh, enabling and, and harm reduction. And I would think that it's probably situational to a certain degree. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some hard, harder lines there, but I'm sure it's a very fine line in, in any respect with someone who's dealing with that. You know, most people will automatically assume giving a heroin addict clean needles is enabling. And, and you just explained very eloquently how it's not. But I can see how a parent of an addict would be like, there's no way I'm going to give them clean needles. Right. You know, which really isn't isn't their job. That that that's for someone, someone like you. Um, so I was just trying to help define it for the people who may be listening who are battling with this kind of I don't want to enable them, but I do yeah. Yeah, what I usually say, so I, I remember talking to my, uh, my my dear friend Sheila on the phone. She was um, distraught over what to do about her son. And I just reminded her, if you give him $20 and he goes and buys dope and overdoses, he was, that is not because you gave him the $20. If, if you don't give him the $20, I basically what I said to her was like, if you give him the $20, it's not going to kill him. If you don't give him the $20, it's not going to save him. Right. Yeah. Again, this thing is so complicated. If it really is adverse childhood experiences and environment and our different physiological makeups and all these other experiences, you know, the, all the uh, social determinants that come into it, if it's all those things, then throwing me 20 bucks or let me stay at the house isn't going to be the thing that makes or breaks me. And, and that's that is where it's hard to embrace that kind of like powerlessness. Right, that I am not going to fix this person that I love. I cannot love them enough to get them to change her behaviors. Uh, and, and you can't with severe substance use disorder. Uh, again, it has to be internal motivated, but you can do all those other things, like yeah. keep them as safe as possible as they go through this journey and yeah. let them know that you love them and that you'll always be there for them as they go yeah. through the journey. I'd like to, one last thing I'd like to say about this the tough love versus judgment is. Um, you know, be, be careful, be careful how you approach them and what you say to them. I once heard a mother plea to her son to stop because of what he was doing to her. And she just kept, kept saying it. Now, I don't want to judge her because I'm not a parent of, of, of someone who is using it. And, and so the judgment is not necessarily on her, but the judgment is more in line of what it was doing to him, which I would assume was completely ineffective. It's just adding to the shame that there's no intrinsic motivation there to stop because I would imagine the childhood was probably part of the problem to some degree. Again, I don't want, I'm not judging her. I think you, we've had enough of a conversation. You understand that I'm not you know, judging the parents for any type of adverse 
childhood because everyone's battling their own demons. But well, yeah. and as you said before, intergenerational trauma is a thing, right? Yeah. This goes back three, four, five, multiple generations. So. Yeah, absolutely. But but we have to be very. What kind of advice do you have for that about with with the tough love and and the things you should or should not say? Uh, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to this idea that connection is the opposite of addiction. The antidote for addiction, right, is connection. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's counterproductive uh, to push people away. Again, unless it's for personal reasons of uh, personal safety, um, <coughs> I don't see how that would be effective. Yeah, what, 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 it definitely wouldn't be effective. I guess my question is, to change. is what kind of uh, things are appropriate for tough love versus what kind of things aren't? I don't, yeah, I don't think there are tough love appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, that's why I keep not answering, right? Because I, I just, okay. Okay. I can't, Fair I enough. can't think of examples of tough love uh, that would, that would be appropriate because again, it, it's, Tough love has this idea that I'm going to give you tough love and you will see the error of your ways. Yeah. Um, and that's not the way substance use disorder works, unfortunately. I wish it was, hey, if love and frothy emotional appeal and uh, all those things could, could work, then people wouldn't have their kids removed. You know, we see people yeah. all the time who can't stop. They have their kids removed or they, they get threatened with going to prison and they still can't stop. So even for self-preservation, people are in the grips of this thing that they can't stop doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, and not, I think, it's a tough, like book, to, tough pill to swallow. Yeah. And I, I'd like to end with that, you know, in, in, in the definition of the substance use disorder um, is the inability to control. And I, I know there's a lot of debate, but this really is a mental condition. It, it, it is a, and, uh, and it's a physiological condition. Mm -hmm. And um and a social condition, right? Because a lot of these, yeah. a lot of these things that for all the aces, that doesn't have anything to do with my, yeah, with my mind or body, yeah. yeah. And and that inability to control is what you were just talking about. The people <clears throat> they know they know what's at risk, yeah. Um, and they still make the decision anyway. And so it's not, it it is just as simple as not doing it, but it's not as simple as not doing it. Boy, it if that's an under, I don't know what it is. <laughs> so it it is it is complicated. I, that's what I always say. I hope that every time I talk about this, people think, well, that didn't really clarify much. Now it just seems <laughs> even more complicated. Um, the, the, the disorder itself is incredibly complicated. Uh, the, the causes of it are complicated. The treatment for it is complicated. The response to it is going to be as complicated, which again is why I don't share specifically how I escaped chaotic drug use, because what worked for me not, might not work for the next person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I will say this, though, if, if you have a loved one who is using opioids, the gold standard uh, is either buprenorphine or methadone. So if you want that person to stay alive, if you want them to um, stay disease free, stay out of jail, then those are the treatment methods. Uh, okay. for, for other drugs, it's not as cut and dry. Um, but for those drugs, those are the most effective ways to keep our loved ones alive and healthy. Okay, good information to have. So Chris, I'm going to ask you, um, if you want to send me some information that I'll put on my blog, um, and it can be whatever you think would be pertinent to people who are listening, um, it, it doesn't matter what it is, but I'll post that on, on my website um, so people have it. And again, I want to tell you, um, I, 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 I appreciate you. I love the work that you're doing. I had no idea, and uh, I, I think it's amazing, and I can't 
I mean, I really want to learn more from you uh, about this. So I not only want to do this again, but I, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to connect outside of this and, and uh, share some information. I, I think it'd be, I think it'd be amazing. Maybe I'll come down and visit Joey and uh, we can all hang out down in Florida. Okay. I don't, yeah. I don't know how far away from him you are. Uh, just, it's about an hour drive. Not too far at all. Yeah. yeah. He, he's invited me like 5,000 times. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool, and uh, you know, it gives me an excuse. Are, are are you near? I don't know where you're at in Arizona. Are you near? Sedona? I'm in I, I'm in Phoenix, so I'm about an hour okay. and a half away from Sedona. Okay, okay. <clears throat> I have so some friends in Phoenix and friends in Sedona, and yeah, it's beautiful up there. Like, knock the air out of you. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard. So, all right, my friend, I I I appreciate it. It's um, it was yeah, a great it's discussion. I'm looking forward to have you back again. I'd love to come back. Cool, man. I, I, again, I appreciate. I, I appreciate yeah, this is this is great, Brad. I'm really yeah. glad we did this. Thank you. So, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you agreed to do it, and I'm going to thank Dave again um, that he connected us. And um, you know, let's keep in touch. I like that. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye, Brad. Hello. Hello. Is anyone here? Hello. Hello. Oh, oh, hi. There you are. I've been looking all over for you. I want to thank you for listening uh, today. I also want to tell you, if you haven't checked out my website lately, uh, you should do that. It's www.thebradleyhall.com. Just to remind you, I am a holistic life coach, a certified mindfulness instructor, and I am a trauma recovery coach. In these uncertain times, sometimes... We just need someone to talk to, to help us clear our thoughts, help us organize our thoughts, and help us map out a clear direction of where we want to go to help us navigate through the obstacles that we, we may encounter through daily life. And I'm here to do that for you. So check out my website. I've got plenty of free content uh, on my, my website, also on my YouTube channel, which is The Bradley Hall and uh, The Health Preacher. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. So thanks again for listening. We appreciate your support. And until then, take care of yourself.